Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Square, Episode 6, a novel by Ed Adams. Driscoll. Defence Secretary Bernard Driscoll was worried. He needed to handle the missing toxin situation from within the UK. It needed to be kept secret on account of the way the chemical agent was in the UK in the first place. I have some codes which may need to be intercepted. Driscoll had called the US operations room in the American Embassy in London. He was using the priority phone. Sure thing, said Colonel O'Malley, waving to others in his own facility to listen in. How can we expedite this? O'Malley was an intermediary. He didn't really know the significance of the codes or the situation, but he could get them wired back to the NSA in Maryland, and there would be fast action. Depending upon where the codes referenced would affect how the US processed them. The codes were wired on a secure system to the USA, where the trackers were shown as deactivated and the static markers were showing an area of desert near to Riyadh at an American Air Force base. This was a fairly ideal situation because it meant the consignments were currently being stored in an isolated area of desert. If a removal was to take place, then this would be a great location away from built-up centres and limiting collateral damage. The code of the transmitter sequences was passed from the contact office in Washington, direct to Fort Meade in Maryland, to the Echelon headquarters, which had technology for tracking and satellite intercepts. Here, the simple code for the two consignments passed for verification to a duty desk and then authorised such that a transmitter could be started in each consignment. This would give a third party with the right permissions access to the consignment location and could allow a special group to be dispatched to locate the items. The first surprise was that the two beacons were co-located, not as expected in Riyadh, but they had moved to the White Desert just outside Cairo. Using advanced telemetry, a satellite-based sweep of the desert was planned on a high-resolution setting. Because of satellite positioning, it took three hours before the right satellites were in a good position to run surveillance. Live and hot, shouted the duty sergeant, who had loaded the code and coordinates as the first images came in. The desert showed some small buildings, but also a clear image of a single truck parked. General Simpson was heading the American part of the operation. Who do we have in the area, he asked. Avert or covert, came the reply. This is very covert, said Simpson. We need to blow up a couple of US manufactured consignments which were stored in Saudi Arabia and are now illegally in Egypt. The consignments are a high technology design which could be part of a terrorist plot. We need to act with maximum focus to neutralise this. We have some operatives in the area fit for this purpose, came the reply. I'm looking through the files and in country we have a small base with some regular soldiers who could be asked to work native, suggested O'Malley. No, I want a top person for this. We must fly someone in, Black Ops style. Normal airlines, undercover, provisioned with non-American weaponry, in-country. The trail was now leading towards a Delta Force person, and before very long the name Chuck Manners had surfaced. He had many awards for bravery in the field. He was tracked down to an American military base in the Germany area and called in for a briefing. 
You will be at Stuttgart Echtedingen Airport tonight on the first plane to Cairo. You will be provisioned with civilian transport and undesignated non-American armaments to get to a spot in the desert where you will be asked to destroy two consignments. Chuck paused and then nodded. This is an illegal operation, he queried. Yes, it is, and there are some very high stakes involved. If I do this and get captured, what happens? You won't. You have perfect coordinates for the consignments, and you will have enough personal firepower if anyone pays you a visit. No one even knows the consignments have been stolen, let alone their new whereabouts. We've just diverted satellites to get the information. The consignments are currently parked, but we expect them to be moved again later today. Chuck Manners nodded. He was used to these types of operations. He had no qualms about driving a hard position to get things done. He would work alone. He could be very fast and nimble. When involved in this type of operation, the trick was to get in and get out fast before anyone noticed. One hour later, Manners was at the airport for the flight to Cairo. Now. Car chase victims. Mohamed Mubarain knew the points where he could gather information and made personal calls. Despite the reputation of terrorist cells being very secure, there were many ways that gossip travelled, and the people he would speak to would know if there was anything unusual. Mohamed made his first call with Firas Belhassan, a leading imam in the local community. He changed the story enough to avoid direct traceability, but with enough of a ring of truth to attract corrections and further confirmation. Firas Belhassan listened and after a long pause said, You know, I think something is happening. A few days ago we heard that Gali Yassim would visit the UK and sure enough he arrived with his brother and a close associate named Mehdi Akron. Initially they seemed to spend their time doing tourist things, spending money gambling and behaving in a fairly non-Muslim way. Besides their time in central London, they seem to have been out for several long drives to other parts of the country and instead of flying out of the UK, they have left by car into Europe. This is unusual transport for Gali Yassim, for whom speed is the essence. Mohammed understood the significance of this information. A senior, royal and diplomatically secure person had arrived in the UK with supporters. He was suspected of terrorist involvement, yet had moved around freely, finally leaving the country by car through France. Do we know when Yassim left? Mohammed asked. I'm not sure, but it was in the last few days, replied Firas Belhassan. Mohammed knew that Firas wanted to lead a straightforward life, to be involved with the local community, and that he deplored efforts of extremists to undermine the community and relationships with the country. Mohammed knew it was still a tough decision for Firas to make these disclosures, because Yassim was a fellow Muslim, whereas Mohammed would provide the information to non-Muslim authorities in the United Kingdom. Mohammed knew that he needed to get the information really laid back to Karen and the primary investigation team. They now had three names and a location and probable cargo. It was possible that the cargo had left the country with the three suspects and that it was travelling by car to France. While Mohammed was investigating, Karen was busy too. She received notification of another incident involving Arabs in central London. There had been a car chase involving a Mercedes and a BMW through the centre of London. Along Park Lane, the Mercedes had run into a set of railings and the people in the BMW had stopped beside the car, calmly got out, walked to the Mercedes, appearing to be carrying handguns. 
The commotion of the chase had created a general alert in the area and several police motorcycles on embassy and royal duties had been able to reach the scene more or less as the car crash occurred. They had also radioed an armed response unit which was on its way from around a mile away. The incident was close to many embassies and there were plenty of police cover. The pursuing occupants of the BMW had seen that they were about to be outmaneuvered and had driven into a nearby underground car park. They had abandoned their car and then used a pedestrian exit to leave the car park before anyone realised what was happening. Then they boarded a taxi from an adjacent hotel and moved quietly out of the area. The police had created a cordon around the crashed car and also radioed for a paramedic. The three Arabs in the car had been heavily shaken by the crash but were fundamentally uninjured compared with the heavy damage sustained by the car. Karen had been among the first people on the scene and her initial instincts were to be suspicious of what was happening. She approached the Arabs, who were trying to make excuses and to leave the scene. No, she instructed the police. We need to question these about another matter. She radioed for SI6 backup, and another paramedic ambulance arrived, driven by her own staff. The Arabs were instructed to get into the ambulance, and then it moved away, followed by Karen. They would take them to a hospital ward, with the small difference that this would be within an SI6 complex. The wards were fully camera and sound enabled, which would mean if there was anything to learn from the Arabs, then they would hear it. The ambulance cut through London traffic. Karen followed in her car. She did not understand what had been happening, why they were being chased or who the assailants were. The hospital looked very realistic. Karen watched the three Arabs being escorted in and then moved to individual rooms close together. The cameras and sound were already running and within minutes they had started to talk to one another about what they needed to do. They spoke Arabic to one another but the SI6 facility had already provided translators. This is not good, said one of the three. He was wearing a suit and looked very smart. I agree, said the second. I think they were Mossad. We need to get out of here fast. The third Arab spoke. We still have the rendezvous in Ashford tomorrow. The first Arab spoke again. We must just leave here. Because of the car chase, we will be detained for questions. But because we are the victims, we should be able to negotiate our way out fast. My preference is to tell them we are shaken up and that we would rather answer questions tomorrow. That gives us a chance to completely leave the country. Karen was pleased with how this was going. Without so much as a word of interrogation, they were telling her a lot about their plans. Karen's team had been running checks on the Mercedes too and discovered that it was a recently purchased new vehicle from a central London garage. It included all the extras, and this included a built-in phone, which was still in the car when the police were getting ready to tow it away. Karen had requested an immediate phone trace, both of calls and of the originating location. This has shown that there was a long string of calls to many numbers, both in London, but also in the Middle East. In among the series were several calls from the M2 and A2, leading out of East London through Kent and towards Dover. There are also a series of calls from a location near to Ashford. We'll have a fix on location, and we know that there will be a meeting tomorrow, thought Karen. Now we need to know what they are expecting. She decided it was time to speak directly to the Arabs. She had already radioed to Muhammad, who was also on his way to the special facility. Karen decided that they may get more information by using Muhammad, particularly if he could befriend them in some way. To stall until his arrival, she had a doctor visit them say that they each needed an x-ray and that after this they would be free to go, but until this had been completed, he could not release them because of liability. The Arabs talked amongst themselves. 
Then the one in the suit shrugged. Please to hurry. We have other appointments this evening. The Arabs had decided it would be easier to leave after the procedure had finished and with no fuss and not raising any further suspicions. At this time, Mohammed arrived. Karen explained what was happening and that Mohammed could probably intervene in a way that would get further information. They decided to send him in as a medic and he'd done some hospital clothing to look the part. He walked into the holding area where the three men were kept. Hello, he said, and then, overtly noticing they were Arabs, he added, Assalam alaikum. The three Arabs all turned together as they heard this. Wa alaikum assalam, one of them replied. It looks as if you could be here overnight, continued Mohammed in English. They've just told me they want to do some further tests before they will let you go, in case of concussion. You won't be able to leave without the paperwork. He continued. He was trying to create more of a feeling of being trapped, and the Arabs seemed to respond to this. What do you mean, asked one. You should be fully examined before you can move, in case there is concussion or internal bleeding from this accident. The Arabs again consulted one another, this time in English. Then the one with the suit said, Perhaps you can help us. Sure, said Mohammed, switching back to Arabic. What do you need? We have to be at a meeting tomorrow afternoon by 1600 and need to leave here tonight to prepare for it, said the suited Arab. Can you help get us processed this evening? I should be able to, continued Mohammed. I'm the duty medic this evening. Can you give me a little more information so that I can complete a form to get you processed? He smiled to the three of them and continued to speak in Arabic. What is the nature of your visit to the UK, he asked. The Arabs looked to one another. Business, we need to attend a meeting tomorrow afternoon where we are to receive some goods. Business, that's all I need, said Mohammed, looking officious and st studiously writing something onto his notepad. I will, no I will go away now and get the paperwork produced so that you can be processed quickly. Before he turned, he said, Ma Salama, and the three Arabs replied with the same greeting. Mohammed walked slowly to the door and then into the corridor. He had enough to go on. The three Arabs were expecting to pick up something at 1600 tomorrow from somewhere in Ashford, and they had located the pickup point from the car's mobile phone. Mohammed relayed the information to Karen Martin. This is great, replied Karen. Now we have what we need to be at the pickup in Kent tomorrow. So that is how Mohammed found himself on the Honda approaching the truck lay-by. Mossad. The Arabs knew exactly who had been chasing them in central London. Gali Yassin was speaking. They were the Israeli intelligence services, and the reason we were being chased was because someone has made the connection between the missing nerve agent and Al-Aktar. I guess the original theft has been planned for so long that someone has let it slip. But why would Israel be so interested, asked Mehdi Akran. Gali Yassim responded, Israel has long been on the cutting edge of research and development in advanced technologies. It may be a country of very limited natural and financial resources and not at peace with some of its neighbours. However, Israel's scientists and engineers have faced the challenge of devising new and innovative solutions, which has led to research for military technologies, both for defence and as part of offensive border enforcement. Inevitably, having fought three major wars in the first two decades of its existence, the Israeli government reached the conclusion in the late 1960s that it would have to develop as much of its own defence capabilities as possible, and it is through that time that we can see the closer affiliations with the USA. It was this combination of biotech research and prior warfare-related research 
that has led to the establishment of special facilities such as the Ron Hebron Research Park, where the advanced research has taken place and finally led to an accident. A nerve agent has been tested but then leaked with disastrous consequences. A complete lab was sealed and the remaining nerve agents packaged ready for destruction. The tough deal for Israel was that the nerve agent would be destroyed by another country, ironically because their own capability had been sealed off because of the accident. The nerve agent produced had surpassed Israel's own expectations of strength and virulence. To destroy it required a highly specialised capability, of which there are only a few in the world. The UK's port and down had been selected after pressure from the United States. Although the USA could also handle the chemical agent, it had been agreed that a low-key process through the UK would attract less attention. We know that Avi Abner had negotiated the transfer of the canisters to the UK via diplomatic channels. Careless Americans, said Mahdi Akron, creating a deadly toxin and leaving it in Saudi Arabia before dumping a deadly quantity in Tel Aviv, then leaving diplomatic channels to clear up the mess. Gali Yassim spoke. It makes Al-Aktar's decision simple. Steal it from Israel. That's why we ship it through various countries like regular freight. It also insulates the theft and transaction from Al-Aktar. Gali Yassim continued. Avi Abner's counterintelligence services are good. Very good. But they have gambled on finding the links back to Al-Aktar. Now they have tracked Al-Aktar representatives to London, but they have given away their cover by the car chase involving the Mercedes and the BMW. I suspect Avi Abner had wanted to act unilaterally to gather intelligence and took our arrival in London as a sign that the containers had arrived.'